Well, hey, Harvest, my name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to take a moment before we get started to really just talk about, you know, the situation and just how much of an opportunity and a blessing it is to have the technology to be able to do this. And I know some of you are at home and there are possible distractions. So what I want to do is just take a moment and pray for our service before we get started. Uh, dear Lord, I, I just thank you for the ability to still gather together um, through technology, through the ability to sit under your word. And Lord, I just pray for possible distractions right now with our kids and with everything going on in the news and around us. Lord, if this would be a time where um, our minds are open, Lord, our eyes are focused on your word and our hearts are just ready to hear from you. So, Lord, I thank you for your presence being here. I thank you for your church that you're building, and I pray that you would just be with us um, in this week and the weeks to follow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Mark 11. Mark 11, we'll be starting in verse 27. And we're continuing in our series called The Final Days of Jesus. And on Sunday, there was the triumphal entry, right? And Jesus enters in on a donkey, and people are excited, and they're shouting, and they're praising, and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, he's here, our king, our savior, he's here to liberate us. And what does Jesus do? He walks into the temple, right? The, the presence of God walks into the temple. He looks around, and he sees everything going on, and he sees the corruption, and and he immediately turns around and he walks out. Now, parents, maybe you've experienced this before. Maybe uh, you might have done this when you're in high school. Maybe parents, you, uh, uh, your parents leave, right? And then you invite some people over, and then they invite some people over, and then they invite some people over, and then all of a sudden your house is full and everything's getting out of control and it's turning into a problem. And then your parents walk in and they're like, okay, you know what? Have fun tonight. Enjoy your time. But tomorrow there's going to be a price to pay. So what happens on Monday, Jesus, he's walking into Jerusalem. He walks by the fig tree and he curses it because it's not producing fruit. And this is symbolizing Israel and their barrenness and how they are failing in their spirituality. And he says, okay, I'm going to curse this. And then he goes to the temple and he cleanses it. He's flipping over tables. He's whipping people out and he's saying, my house is a house of prayer, not a den of thieves and robbers. See, by his actions, Jesus is directly challenging the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. They all start thinking about how do we destroy Jesus? And not only is he directly challenging these religious leaders, uh, but also the Romans, they needed no excuse to exercise force if there was civil instability. The people are loving this. They are witnessing the very Jesus that they were expecting at this point. And we knew that that would quickly change, but right now he's doing exactly what they wanted him to do. But at the same time, those radical steps that he was taking and cleansing the temple, it sealed his fate. It determined his death. And those in authority, they would not put up with Jesus's challenge. So Tuesday morning rolls around and uh, groups are gathering. And you can imagine how fast this word would have spread about this Jesus, the Messiah, coming in and cleansing the, te the temple and causing all this ruckus to go on. And people want to see him. People want to witness him. They want to hear what he is saying. So today we're going to see four different interactions between Jesus and the religious elite 
And what we need to do is we need to think about these and really picture them as peace negotiations. That Jesus, his goal and his heart is for people to come to know him, to repent, to say, you know what, what we were doing is wrong. We're not glorifying God with what we're doing, so we need to stop. We need to turn around and follow Jesus. See, throughout the Old Testament, the Lord would speak through his prophets. And time after time, again, people would fail and people would turn and they would reject the Lord. And if we looked at these covenants and if we compared them to peace treaties in history, the similarities are striking. There's introduction to speakers. There's a historical prologue. There's stipulations. There are public readings. There's witnesses and cursings and blessings for following those treaties. So you say, today, Jesus is attempting to make peace. The result is either going to be people bending the knee and choosing to follow him and really humble themselves, or there's going to be preparation for battle. There's going to be a war that is waged. Which one is it going to be? You know, sadly, what we're going to experience, what we're going to see are four avenues that can lead us to having a wrong view of Jesus. So go ahead, follow along with me in verse 27 as we start in Mark 11. It says, And then they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? You see, they're, they're asking Jesus, and this is the Sanhedrin, they're approaching him. They're like, hey, who gave you the authority to do this? So why would they ask that? Because they were the ones who had authority over the temple, and they were the ones who had authority about what goes on inside the temple. So Jesus responds. He said, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, uh, was it from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another. And what I picture here is Jesus asked this question, and the uh, Sanhedrin are like, okay, pause, time out. Um, let, let's gather together, and we'll think about how we're going to answer Jesus. Uh, give us time. We need to come up with the best plan about how we're going to fool him. I think about this. I was playing soccer with my son Cameron a couple of days ago, and we're in the backyard, and um, I'm, I'm very competitive, so I go 100% all the time. So I'm beating Cam like 45 to nothing, and I'm not letting up on him. And one time I steal the ball, I'm on a breakaway, I'm about to kick it in the goal, and he quickly goes, quit, time out, time out. And he like, calls this timeout before I score, and he's like, okay, i got to think about how am I going to get the ball from dad? Well, what steps am I going to take? How am I going to set up my defense? How am I going to fool him? You know, that's the same thing that the Sanhedrin's doing right here. And then they say uh, to each other as they're in their huddle, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they are afraid of the people, for they held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And it's like, man, have you ever been in an argument and you know that there's no way that you're going to win? So you just like kind of cop out and you're just like, I, I don't know, I have no idea. So Jesus says this and he says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So what I see here is I have a wrong view of Jesus. The first thing, I have a wrong view of Jesus when I question his authority. I have a wrong view of Jesus when I question his authority. And because of their unbelief, Jesus refuses to tell them where his authority comes from. 
And we're really seeing his brilliance on display. And he can see right through their questions. He can see the intentions of their hearts. And Psalm 139 says this. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, my, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before words on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. What Jesus is doing, he's answering their question with a question that they cannot answer. Because if they say that it's from heaven, uh, then they would say they did not believe in the very same Jesus that John testified. But if they answered from man, there would be a civil uproar to the common people who believed that he was sent from God. So they say, we don't know. Verse 12 says, And then he began to speak in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a tower. And Jesus is preaching about a vineyard because a vineyard was the national symbol for Israel. And as he's talking about this, the people that are there in that context are immediately making a connection with Jesus. And then he says about this vineyard that it was leased to tenants, and then he went into another country. And when the season came, so that season, there's a big gap in there. Levitical law said you needed five years until you could go and harvest the fruit. So five years, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him. They sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And then he sent another and to him they killed. And so many others, some they beat, some they killed, he had still one another, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, come, this is the year. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So what's the logic behind that? You know, if I'm thinking about this, I'm like, okay, if I kill the son, then I'm going to have the father to deal with. So that doesn't make sense. But again, thinking about the culture, thinking about the context, that son would not have came by himself, that the father would have come to check on the vineyard himself. And if the son came, he would have came with the father. So when they see that son coming, they're saying, okay, the father is dead. He's gone. If we kill the son, it will be ours. Now think about something that a friend has lent you for maybe five years. Right? I think about it. I have a friend that is uh, moving up to Fremont, and he uh, needed a place to store his rifles. So I have a safe. He gave them to me. He's like, hey, store these for me. So I took them, and I've had them for like a year and a half now. So I'm thinking like, hey, maybe he forgot about these rifles. Hey, you know what? It's getting warm outside. Maybe I can go start shooting. Maybe I could buy some ammo. Maybe I'm just going to claim these as my own. It's exactly what is going on here when he's sending these servants and when they see the son coming and they kill him. They say, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So then they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
So if we break down the parable of the tenants and we really see where the parallels are, the vineyard owner is God, the vineyard is Israel, the servants are God's prophets, the son is Jesus, the destruction of the tenants is God's judgment on the religious leaders, the giving of the vineyard is the inclusion of the Gentiles. This is why Jesus is teaching this parable. Verse 12 says, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him, and they went away. And so they are viewing Jesus wrongly because they are challenging his authority. You know, how do we do this? What has the Lord entrusted us with? He's expecting us to produce a fruit, uh, husbands in the room, you know, your wife, she will stand before the Lord one day and she will give an account for her stewardship and how she shepherded the things that the Lord entrusted to her. But husbands, you, you need to look here and you need to listen that one day you'll stand before the Lord, you'll give an account for yourself, but also how you stewarded and shepherded your wife and your kids are gonna be part of that. How did you lead them to the Lord? Did you know the spiritual temperature in your house or did you just let it slip through your fingers? We are all expected to produce a fruit. How are we at responding to conviction in our lives? You know, I meet with people every single week for soul care and they come in. One of the first questions I ask is, hey, how much, are you, how much scripture are you reading? Are you getting in the word? And the answer almost always is not as much as I should be, and it's like, why, why are we feeling this? We're having conviction over this, uh, largely, but it's like we're not doing anything about that conviction. We're not taking a step in obedience. We're not following through what the Holy Spirit is pressing on us to do. Let's look at this parable and take this as a warning. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed on the day of redemption like the religious leaders that Jesus is speaking to right now, the people that he is confronting, we will all give an account one day. Verse 13 says, And then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And now this is very interesting because the Pharisees and the Herodians, they hated each other. Uh, this group wanted nothing to do with each other. Think about like Michigan and Ohio State. Think about like everybody in the MLB against the Houston Astros right now. Um, for the women that are watching, think like, like Twilight, like Team Edward and Team Jacob. Um, I can't believe I just said that to an empty room, but, but Team Jacob, let's go. Like that is how much these people hated each other. See, the Pharisees, they were nationalistic. They represented a very narrow, conservative view. They resisted Rome, the Herodians. They sold themselves out to the Romans. They were liberal left-wingers, but they both shared a mutual hate for Jesus. The Pharisees hated him because he was disrupting their religious agendas. The Herodians hated him because they threatened their political arrangement, yet both of them wanted him dead. So verse 14, together they approach Jesus and they're unified and they ask him this. They come and they said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, 
Why put me into the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Then they brought him one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then Jesus responds to them. He says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. No matter how Jesus answers, if he says yes or if he says no, he's putting himself in danger. He's either going to put himself in danger with the Romans or he's going to put himself in danger with the uh, Jewish elite. So what does he respond? He says, whose likeness is this made? Whose inscription is on this? They respond to him, Caesar. They say, hey, you know what? Caesar's face is on this. He's uh, this coin. It's made in the image of Caesar. Therefore, it belongs to him. Wasn't this interesting? Look at Genesis 127. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So Jesus responds to this. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. And what we need to understand is ancient coins, they actually were the property of whoever had their likeness on it and whoever's insignia was on it. So Jesus, by saying, give to God what is God's, Jesus is stating that there is only one God, and he's obliterating Caesar's claim of divinity. He's stating God's total claim and total ownership over us because we are made in the image of God. And for something to be made in the image of man would mean that the Lord has complete ownership and authority over whatever that is. See, Jesus' Jewish listeners automatically would have made this connection automatically their minds would have been blown, and that's why they're sitting there marveling at him. See, I have a wrong view of Jesus when I obsess on the temporary. I have a wrong view of Jesus when I obsess on the temporary. Both the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're so caught up in their religious and their political affairs that they completely miss it when Jesus is face-to-face with them. You know, so often we're consumed by the things of this life. So often we're taking our eyes quickly off of Jesus and focusing on the circumstance, focusing on the trial that's in front of us. And I know a lot of us, we have a doctor's appointment coming up. We have a bill that maybe we can't pay. We're looking at the next three weeks of having our kids at home and we're like, how are we going to get through this? What are we going to do? How are we going to make it? What are we going to turn to? What's going to be our source of joy and comfort? How am I going to make it? it. See, I meet with a lot of people, and the most common thing that comes up is anxiety and fear. And here's what I know is obsessing over anything other than Jesus makes it an idol in our heart. And we cannot view Jesus correctly in our hearts, in our thoughts, if our eyes are fixed on something else. You know, I met with a guy um, this week, and he's going through a really hard time. And he's saying things like, I don't know why God is doing this to me. I don't understand. You know what? This is unfair. This persecution, it's not deserved. Somebody else should be going through this. And these thoughts are toxic. We're obsessing on the temporary. You know, we've experienced evil and suffering, and we're so quick to point to Jesus and say it's his fault. Here's what I know, church, is that 
God does not cause bad things to happen. God is not the author of evil. He's not the author of sin and death. Do we believe that? He wants us to take our eyes off of the temporary. He wants to take our eyes off of the present problem and realize that that problem, that trial that we're going through, it's God's grace in our life. Because if we rely on him, if we take our eyes off of the trial, and if we focus on him and get through it, we're going to experience blessings. We're going to experience mercy. But we need God's grace in our lives to get through the trial, to experience the greater grace that he has to offer to us. 1 Peter 5.10 says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Romans 5 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. How do we get from suffering to hope? We need to quit obsessing on the temporary, that we have God, our Father, who's preparing a place for us in heaven, and he promises present suffering, but he also gives us a promised prize. And in order to get to hope, we need to suffer well and rely on him through our suffering. That's why James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Next, we're going to see an interaction with Jesus and the the Sadducees. And what I notice about this interaction is I have a wrong view of Jesus when I doubt his ability. Wrong view of Jesus when I doubt his ability. Verse 18 says, and the Sadducees came to him. Okay, so what we need to understand about the Sadducees is that they uh, represent families in the highest standing. They were wealthy, they were very worldly, they were few in numbers compared to the Pharisees, and they say that there's no resurrection. Okay, so that's important to know. That's important to remember that they do not believe in the resurrection. So, and then they came, uh, they asked him a question, saying, verse 19, teacher, Moses wrote that for us, if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife but leaves no child, the man's brother uh, must take up the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And then the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For uh, For the seven had her as a wife. And aren't these questions just like the worst? And it's like these Sadducees, they they would have had this question in their back pocket, right? And anybody they interacted with that believed in the resurrection, they would approach them and they would ask them the same question. Then they would just sit back in like their own self-righteousness and be like, boom, there's that, answer it. Uh, Let's see what Jesus says here. Jesus said to them, verse 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. What he's doing, he's calling out their ignorance, of God's word. He's calling out their ignorance of his power. He's calling out their ignorance of doubting his ability. 
Jesus quotes Exodus 3.6 when Moses encounters God in the burning bush. And uh, in that moment, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they've been dead for a long time. They would have been bones and dust. And for the Lord to say that he's the God of something that is dead would not make sense. Our God would not make that statement. So by, he's, by when he's saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's saying that they are alive right now because I am the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he would receive as an inheritance. And then he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him in the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So again, a wrong view of Jesus is being developed. The Sadducees and their own ability, and their own self-righteousness. They're doubting God's ability, and they're trying to prove their thawed theology. How are we at this? How much are we willing to trust Jesus's ability? To what extent are we willing to trust him? Do we believe that he is victorious over all of our circumstances? You know, I know I struggle with this at times. And it's like, okay, you know what? There's a trial in my life and I'm going to pray about it. I'm gonna go to God's word, but then I'm going to wait. I'm gonna be looking at my watch and I'm looking at the time. I'm gonna give him X amount of time. And if he doesn't get there, you know what? I'm gonna start doubting his ability. You know what? How can I change this? What control can I take? How can I make things happen? because God isn't showing up. See, Jesus, he destroys this argument. Any argument we have doubting his ability, God is claiming that he is the God of the living. And if he is, and he is fully able to control everything in our lives, are we willing to let him? People come in and they're talking to me about their crisis. And as they're talking in my mind, I'm like, I have no idea what I'm going to say. I have no idea how to solve this problem. So here's the advice that I get. Okay, you know what? We're gonna go to God's word because God's word is everything that we need. And you know what? I'm going to commit to praying for you, but I want you to pray for yourself. I want you to ask the Lord, what is he trying to show you about yourself? How is he trying to grow you? How is he trying to extend a grace to you? We really need to just pray hard about this. And the response is like, awesome, thanks. Thanks for telling me to read God's word. Thanks for telling me to pray. I, I thought by coming in here, you would give me something more tangible to do. Is that how we believe in God's ability? Do I understand in my flesh, I don't have the, uh, the ability, I don't have anything that I can do to change a human heart, that I can't change an outcome. I can't do any of those things, but through God's word, through prayer, and through the Holy Spirit, if we lean into him, if we listen to our convictions, he will give us a different perspective, that he can give us a new angle to look at in our suffering, that we can trust his ability in those situations. Do we believe that? In Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus by prayer 
and supplication with thanksgiving, that that is the only way to get this peace that surpasses understanding this peace that is only offered through Jesus. Verse 28, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The fourth thing I see here is I have a wrong view of Jesus when I misunderstand love. I have a wrong view of Jesus when I misunderstand love. So the scribe, would have been a religious lawyer. He would have been an expert in the Old Testament. He would have known the law frontwards and backwards. And what he's saying is he's approaching Jesus. He's like, hey, out of the 613 commands in the Old Testament, what gets at the heart of all of them? What sums them all up? And he would have agreed with Jesus by quoting Deuteronomy 6.4. This was called the Shema. Uh, You can go ahead and throw that up. The Shema would have been something that devout Jews would have studied and recited twice a day, once at night and once in the morning. And it's something that every Jew would have said, you know what, yeah, this is true. It really operated as the creed of Israel. But to add love your neighbor as yourself, um, this would have been strange and Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19:18, and that would have been common to love your neighbor as yourself. But what Jesus is doing here and combining these, it's really brilliant because he's encompassing uh, the entire Ten Commandments. Uh, love your God would have been one through four, and then the following six deal with loving your neighbor as yourself. So he's nailing this guy's question. He's saying out of the 613, boom, here's your answer. Love God, love others. And look at how the scribe, look at how he responds. Verse 32, the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. And a correct view of Jesus requires owning my sin. Correct view of Jesus requires owning my sin. And we see the scribe and he's watching these interactions. He sees the Sanhedrin, right? He sees the Pharisees and the Herodians. He sees the Sadducees and Jesus is answering and he's answering and he's answering. And this scribe, this religious lawyer, his mind starts turning. He starts thinking, you know what? Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not right. Maybe this Jesus is onto something. He's been raised in this religious system. It's what he's been around his whole life, but we're seeing a little bit of heart change happening. And if we're going to own our sin, there's three distinctives of owning sin that we need to address. The first one is brokenness. Brokenness. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So what we need to do, we need to ask ourselves, am I upset? Am I broken because I got caught? Because I got found out? Because I hurt somebody that I love? Or am I upset and am I broken because I view my sin the same way that the Lord does? Uh, My son, Colby, he just turned five, and and Colby loves Star Wars. And I I get really excited about my kids loving Star Wars because I love Star Wars, and I wanted to be Luke Skywalker when I was growing up and wanted that green lightsaber. But Colby, 
decided that he loves the dark side, which is a problem for me because he wants to be Darth Vader, which is very strange. So now he's running around and we had his little birthday party for him. We got him a full uh, Darth Vader uh, outfit from grandma and grandpa and he got this mask and inside the mask has this noisemaker. And if you press a button, it goes... Like it does a Darth Vader thing, you know? So we put him to bed that night and he's all excited. He's wearing his costume. And then the next morning he comes out and I see his mask and it doesn't have the voice thing in it. And like, Colby, where's the voice thing at? Don't you want to sound like Darth Vader? And he's like kind of sad. He's like, yeah, it broke. So I threw it in the trash. I'm like, oh, what, what trash did you throw it in? Oh, the one upstairs. Um, I was like, okay, well, here, here, here's a good dad moment. I'm going to go get it. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to put it together. Dad's going to save the day. So my sons, nine and five, they share a bathroom together. Um, and you can imagine two young boys sharing a bathroom. Um, and it's kind of a little bit of a mess. So when I go up there and I pull out the trash, I see the remains of my wife that had just cleaned the bathroom. Okay, so it's the nasty, like, yellow, brown, gritty, like, tissues that are just stuffed in there. The smell hits me in the face, like, pfft, you know, it's, it's disgusting. So I bring it downstairs. I start digging through this trash, and I'm looking for this little mouthpiece thing. And I'm like, okay, I'm doing this for my son. He's going to appreciate this. He's going to see that dad loves him. This is gross. I'm, like, gagging as I'm doing it. I get to the bottom of the trash, and it's not there. And I'm like, did I miss it? I don't, what happened? So I look at Colby, and Colby's sitting there watching me, and I'm like, son, did you say you threw this in the trash? And he immediately starts bawling, and he takes off running. And I'm like, what, what was that? So I go upstairs, and I'm like, Colby, what happened? Did you really throw it in the trash? He's like, um, I think I lost it in my bed last night when I was sleeping. And it's like, I I just went through this disgusting trash looking for this thing to put the mask back together and he's losing it and he's crying. But here's the thing, Colby isn't broken over his sin. He's not broken. He's not upset because the Lord and, and he sinned against me and he sinned against the Lord. Colby's upset and he's showing brokenness because he's scared of the consequences. And that's what we need to discern through. That's what we need to look at when we're dealing with brokenness. Here's the thing is that worldly sin, worldly sorrow can turn into godly sorrow, okay? But we need to discern through why are we feeling broken. The second distinctive is exposure. Exposure. Psalm 32 says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And pay attention to this. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength dried up as the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. As David is holding the sin, as he's covering his sin, as he's refusing to expose it, he's wasting away from the inside. It begins with a conviction, you know, that, that weight that we have when we sin, and then broken, the brokenness enters. And then the next step is exposing it and bringing it into the light. Luke 8 says, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known come to light. 
And here's the thing. If we have hidden sin in our lives, if we're hiding things, if we're feeling conviction and refusing to admit it, we're refusing to bring it up, the reality is is that's God's grace on our lives. And that has a limit on it. And he will not let that go on. And truth and time go hand in hand. What is hidden in the darkness will come to the light. And we need to look at that and we need to thank God for that grace. But we need to respond in obedience and expose it and bring it into the light. Because either we will do it on our own with the time that he gives us or he will do it on his terms. We need to expose our sin. The third is repentance. Repentance involves turning 180 degrees and walking back in the direction that we came. We're turning and we're walking straight to the Lord. It's always taking a step towards Jesus. When I was in Afghanistan, we did a lot of training with IEDs. Uh, IED is an uh, an improvised explosive device. And they would be planted in the ground, and I was trained to look for things like this and wires in the ground. So as I'm walking and you see a wire, it's like, okay, that doesn't look good. That looks like a danger area. You know what? I'm going to dig at this. I'm going to expose this and see what's underneath. And then I would see this. And it's like, okay, that is a pressure plate. If I step on that, it's going to explode, right? So in the same way, as I'm approaching my sin, as I'm working on my sin and I'm walking this way, I see it, I expose it. Would it be wise or foolish for me to keep on walking in this direction? It's just going to blow up. It's going to cause harm. It's not going to be good. So if I'm going to repent and if I'm going to walk in a place that I know is safe, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to walk to the Lord. I'm going to see my sin here and I'm going to say, no, I don't want to walk into that. I don't want the pain. I don't want the repercussions. I'm going to turn around and walk to what I know is safe. Owning sin requires brokenness, exposure, and repentance. The scribe continues, says, you have, you have said truly that he is one. There is no other beside him. To love him with all the heart and all the understanding and all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe's saying that I, I can't do this on my own. That I can't just do all the religious things and fully uh, do everything that's encompassing to loving God and others. Look at how Jesus responds. Jesus saw they answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. After that, the peace negotiations were over. After that, this peace treaty was violated. See, a correct view of Jesus requires loving with all that I am. Correct view of Jesus requires loving with all that I am. True biblical love requires love of the Lord and love of people. We can't just pick and choose which one we want. What about the mission statement of our church? It's to lift up the name of the Lord in worship, to hold high his word as authority in our lives and to love well the community that he has placed us in. James Edwards says this. He says, all the love of God, love of humanity, were occasionally affirmed separately in Israel. There's no evidence that before Jesus they were ever combined. It does not appear that any rabbi before Jesus regarded love of God and neighbor as center and sum of the law. This is something we can't get wrong. We have 
truth people and we have grace people. And I'm a person where I can see a problem and I can point out everything wrong that somebody is doing and point them to scripture. Like you have to do this and you know what, if you did this and really just kind of tear them apart with truth. And there's other people that are, that are grace and they're like, hey, you know what, we all sin. You know what, just try harder next time. You know what, God still loves you. And we can either miss it on one side or the other. But look here, what we need to do is work on our vertical relationship, love God with everything that we have, and out of that flows our horizontal relationship where we're loving others as ourself. And what picture does that paint? It's nothing but the cross. It's a perfect picture of the cross. And Jesus is going to answer this scribe. He's going to say, you know what? In order to fully love God, in order to fully fulfill his call, you need to love God and love people. And he's saying, you know what? It's about this cross. It's about your vertical relationship and your horizontal relationship. Because he knew in a couple of days that he would be pinned to a cross, the very thing that he's using to illustrate this by going to that cross. He's defeating sin and death and everything that was going on in that time, every sin that we commit now, every sin that we're going to commit, Jesus went to that cross willingly, died for you, died for me, said, you know what? I'm still going to fulfill this. I'm still going to trust God. I'm still going to love my neighbor. I'm going to pay this price for you. And if you believe this, if you want this, if you want full eternity and glory with me, then you need to believe who I am right now that you need to confess with your mouth right now. You have to believe in your heart as I'm saying these things that they're making themselves manifest in your soul that you will be with me in glory one day. It's a perfect picture of the gospel. And conversation after conversation, Jesus is just blowing these guys' minds. He's leaving them marveling at him and they're still missing it. And that's our big idea is that I've missed by an inch. I miss by a mile. If I miss by an inch, I miss by a mile. See, Jesus, he, he responds by saying, you're not, you're not far off. You, you know, you're, you're starting to get it. You're having the right thoughts. I can see heart change happening, but you haven't fully jumped in yet. And, and here's the thing, church. If, if we miss by an inch, we might as well miss by a mile. We can come this close. We can fool ourselves into believing we have something we don't by checking all the boxes. But if we don't, like Jesus says, love God with everything that we have, if we don't love people like we love ourselves, we're going to miss by a mile. If you're not dead on, it doesn't matter. I hope we've paid attention to Jesus' peace negotiations because that offer of peace, it's, it's still available to us today. Because of Jesus on the cross, we can still make that choice. We can still accept him. We can still extend our hands out and say, yes, I want this. I accept this. I believe you are who you say you are. But maybe we're sitting at home and you know, we have this wrong view of Jesus. Maybe we're questioning his authority. Maybe we're obsessed on temporary issues. We're doubting his ability and we're misunderstanding love. God's word says if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. There's a famous quote that says, if you want peace, prepare for war. On this Tuesday, Jesus knew that he was going to the cross 
On this Tuesday, Jesus was making peace negotiations in his mind. He was, pre- he was mentally preparing for this war that would be waged. So now it's on you. Are you going to be like these people that he interacted with today and be silented and, and turn away discouraged? Or are we going to take a, te- a step towards Jesus and fully accept his sacrifice for you? Let's pray. Dear Lord, Lord, just with everything going on in our world, in our community, in our homes, uh, Lord, I just pray right now that you would give us peace. And Lord, that starts with really a correct view of who you are. Lord, I pray right now, each and every one of us, as we're tuning in, as we're hearing from your word, as we're just leaning into your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you are convicting us. Lord, you are reminding us of areas where maybe we have not bent the knee to you. And Lord, I just thank you so much that you are relentless after our hearts. And these four interactions with these four groups of people that were just trying to condemn you, trying to put you in a corner, you kept on extending your hand, your grace, and your mercy because that is your heart for us. But Lord, you will not go denied. Lord, you will continue to be a God of grace and love and mercy, but also a God of justice a God of wrath. And Lord, I pray right now that if there's anybody that has a false view of you, Lord, that we would just own our sin. We would identify those three distinctives in our lives that we would turn in repentance and make a decision to follow you. Lord, I pray for our families in this church, our families in our community, that you would keep us safe, that you would keep us healthy. Lord, help us focus our eyes on you and help us love our neighbors well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.